Hello everyone. I am Dermot Kavanagh, Editor-in-Chief of Arbery Road Magazine. And as has become a bit of a habit these days, I'm joined by our CEO, Paco Ruzzante. Paco, how are you doing? Hello everyone, really happy to be here, really excited. It's a pleasure as always, Paco. We are more than a little bit excited today to be joined by Lorenzo Marsili. Now, Lorenzo is a philosopher, activist, co-founder of the European Alternatives. He's the author of several books, including Planetary Politics and Citizens of Nowhere. Lorenzo, thanks a million for joining us this morning. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Hello, my pleasure. And hello to everybody following us today. Okay. Um, so we have entitled this episode of the podcast Citizens of Everywhere, which is a bit of a response to your Citizens of Nowhere, which, as we know, is a response in itself. So before we get down to why we've called the, the episode by this title and some of the topics we're going to discuss, would you like to give us a bit of information about the European Alternative, what the organization is and how it came to be? Yes, surprisingly for a pro-European organization, perhaps, European Alternatives was actually established in London just over a decade ago. And uh, that might appear as a contradiction, but actually we always thought, and we always saw London as the most European uh, of European cities, as uh, in fact the European capital where all of Europe already resides. And the uh, initial team of European alternatives included people from uh, virtually every country of the European Union, really as a testament of the potential of that city as a hub of European integration and certainly of European radical thinking. What we thought at the time was that there was an extraordinary gap developing between, uh, on the one side, the increasingly transnational challenges that our societies are facing. Uh, we were just uh, entering the great financial crisis of 2008 uh, and, and onwards, obviously questions having to do with climate, uh, issues having to do with migration, uh, themes that clearly bypass the mental and material boundaries, the capacities of action of the nation state. And on the other hand, uh, a complete lack of political and democratic spaces to act beyond the nation. So events were happening to us at a level at which we couldn't act politically. And so we decided to establish an organization that could make that point and try to work uh, with social uh, civil society, with activists, with the cultural sector to try and foster a transnational citizenship and a transnational uh, political modality. Uh, which is what we thought was needed for us to really take back control over our destiny and future as Europeans. Okay, perfect. Paco, so we'd like to just um, give you a bit of an introduction to Arbury Road then, Lorenzo, because there are some, we see some similarities between the two groups. Obviously, there are some differences too. Paco, would you like to introduce our project a bit and maybe draw some comparisons? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I think there are many similarities in the sense that uh, Arbery Road is an online political magazine. Uh, and our idea is also to democratize the information and also uh, an answer to, we believe, the challenge of uh, today's politics and today's Europe. The idea is to, uh, well, most progressive magazines are still at the national level, are still focused on the national dimension. Our idea is trying to create a European and transnational discussion. So in a way, doing a little bit uh, of what you were saying, uh, trying to contribute to the creation of a European progressive identity. And of course, uh, uh, 
we want to create a space for discussion. So within the realm of progressive policies, we like to have uh, different opinions. We believe that really there is a need to uh, unify European progressive to create a, a common identity which can help us in uh, change these, uh, in take back control, as you were saying, uh, words that were used now by Trump uh, and to, to um, at the national level, instead, we need to create a, a European and uh, um, global, I believe, uh, citizenship and um, agency to, to take back control. One uh, challenge, uh, though, that I, we find a lot uh, that we are finding in uh, our progress, I would say, is, uh, uh, first of all, uh, like to how to connect one challenge that we are uh, addressing, how to connect with people. Uh, so in your books, uh, especially Citizens of Nowhere, for example, you talk about how, um, you know, there is this narrative built by uh, right-wing politicians that uh, the, the left and the internationalism is a little bit made by elites. And it's true, I believe it's really true that this is not true, like that uh, actually ordinary people are becoming cosmopolitan, are becoming world citizens, have access to information, they have access to uh, news from other countries, and they develop a sort of first European and then cosmopolitan uh, identity. So in a way, um, they are not an economic elite, that's true. They are nonetheless, uh, this is my impression, a cultural elite. Not in the sense of being smarter, of course, than other people, but just in the sense that they had access to um, different opportunities. Simply stimuli, the, they were privileged in a way from a cultural point of view. So one of the challenges we are trying to um, do uh, the thing we are trying to do as Arbury Road is uh, uh, to overcome this. Like the first banal problem is English, for example. You know, I studied in the UK for five years and my English is far from being perfect. Uh, the, many of the people we are trying to talk with don't even speak English. So I, I believe one uh, big question that uh, to which we are trying to answer and that I think I would like you to have your opinion is how do we connect with these people who in a way might feel this discussion we are having are really far from their uh, life of every day? Yes. Um, there is this old concept of Antonio Gramsci that uh, a demos of people doesn't precede its own mobilization. That is to say that if you want to create a transnational uh, sense of belonging, uh, amongst people from different countries, it is not necessarily uh, an intellectual or cultural endeavor that you need to target. You need to explain to them uh, what ties them together, but you need to create the conditions for those people to act together. And through their acting uh, uh, along uh, for their common interests, then a common identity or a common sense of belonging will be forged. So I think when you ask, how we can reach out beyond the intellectual bubble of European debate, the answer must be creating the conditions for people to act to get together around their common interests in ways that transcend boundaries and borders and to facilitate that uh, in, in, in happening. Some of it is taking place in front of our eyes. For example, 
demobilizations of Amazon workers uh, across and between borders is a very good example of that developing quite organically, in fact. Uh, I remember a few years ago, Amazon tried to respond to the strike of German workers by shifting the deliveries on to their and Polish workers, in response, began to work slower than usual so as to avoid the company from essentially uh, fighting against the strike of their friends in Germany by just sh shifting the deliveries over the border. This kind of actions uh, really ought to be more facilitated by, for instance, trade unions. So th th there you see an instance where uh, a social elite, if you like, or at least a professional uh, sector like that of trade union organizers, could act in conjunction with workers in facilitating their already existing organization across uh, borders and boundaries, which is something that stretches well beyond Amazon. The same applies to uh, delivery workers and workers in the economy. It applies to factory workers, which are often put in conflict one against the other when a car company blackmails, for instance, Italian workers by uh, threatening to shift production to, to Poland and demands of the Polish workers lower labor conditions in order to uh, shift that, that factory. So th th there are uh, instances of mobilizations. What I think is lacking is actually for the so-called intermediary bodies, in this case, trade unions, to act in unison and to try and foster and create the conditions for that organization to become more structural. This is something that I think you see replicated in many other sectors. There is, for example, quite a powerful mobilization of young people across borders when it comes to the climate challenges. Uh, Friday for Future is a very good example of it. Other movements, likewise, the movements around migrant rights would be other examples. But we don't see so much an activation of uh, the political professionals, and in this case, political parties, for example, in fostering and facilitating this already existing uh, social organization across, across borders. While uh, uh, students protesting on the streets are very well connected across borders. Political parties, including green parties, remain still dramatically divided in their national debates, national arenas, and national structures. So I think it's a complex question, but part of the answer is we need to place ourselves at the service of already existing and, and budding moments of uh, self-organized connection. Uh, at transnational level. And of course, this is also a role for the media, which has a duty to try and create those connections, to try and explain how the fight of a worker, of a young person, of a migrant in Italy is connected to what is happening in the United Kingdom and how by linking together, both can be stronger. And this is again, a role that national media is not really uh, uh, exercising at the moment. So I, I, don't, I don't think there is so much of a contradiction to the extent that, in fact, I think there is a delay of the intellectual and professional classes in aiding the already existing organization on the ground. Perfect. Thanks a million. Um, okay, so sticking, sticking with this idea of internationalism, I think it's fair to say that since the pandemic hit, many of the aspects of the progress towards internationalism have actually regressed. We've seen borders closed again. We've seen a shift back towards nationalism. There's a, a the, the sense of community became more insular. People were worried about their immediate family, their friends, their country, their city, whatever it may have been. Do you think there are any positives we can take from the last 12 months in terms of the road towards internationalism? I think the pandemic is a good example of what is happening also in other fronts, because on the one hand, 
it makes quite clear how our planetary interdependence has reached uh, an extraordinary state of development. The pandemic is clearly uh, a planetary event uh, that not only uh, affects us, uh, all of us at the same time, but also shows how not uh, addressing the problem in one country automatically reflects on every other country. Uh, the fact that some uh, Western countries may be speeding ahead with vaccination in a context where countries like Brazil or India are instead breeding grounds of new variants and uh, of the evolution of the virus uh, shows us how it is not sufficient to solve our problem at a national level. It must be solved for everyone all around the world, otherwise it will come back to haunt us even if we've completed our vaccination cycle in, uh, in, our, own, in our own country. So th this interdependency is made clear, and yet at the same time, for lack of a truly functioning global response, a planetary capacity to address this global challenge, the, the reaction is a recoiling back behind what seems to protect us, which is the national dimension and the intervention of our state in guaranteeing social support, uh, economic investment, vaccination, campaigns. But this recalling back in the bosom of the national state is an effect of the lack of truly effective planetary actions. It's because the UN is not working. It's because the World Health Organization is not working. It's because we don't really have a global plan for vaccinations and for the equitable rollout of vaccines that the nation state appears as the solution, whereas it is only a temporary solution for as long as a new variant doesn't come and break as it will. Our, our borders. And this is something that you see happening pretty much in every respect. We know that uh, we can only address climate change at a planetary level, but because we're not doing that, then we recoil back into what seems to guarantee at least a little bit of protection, which is our local dimension, our national dimension. This is the contradiction that we need, we need to, to break. And for as long, I believe we will not have effective planetary policies to respond to planetary challenges, this will be a great breeding ground for nationalism, because ultimately nationalism, as Anna Arendt was fond of saying, is really the outcome of the failure of the nation state. Because our nations cannot solve planetary problems, problems continue to exist and the reaction to existing problems is to try and find safety where you can find it, to recoil back, to create a larger barrier. So you want to solve nationalism, you need to solve the limitations of national action in the first place. Paradoxically, the response to nationalism is more planetary politics. Okay, perfect. While, while we're on that point as well, before we move on any further, would you, for in case anyone is, is unfamiliar, would you give us a little bit of information about the Progressive International and what that organization has been doing and is doing to aid internationalism and to help us move towards these, these shared goals of ours? Yes, I was involved just at the very beginning of the launch of the Progressive International, so I uh, and I, I don't have a role within it, so I cannot speak on behalf of it. Uh, but, but, but what I can say is that uh, it, it, it emerges from uh, long discussions that uh, were taking place within several groups, uh, within European alternatives, within DiEM25, uh, within European political parties, um, really trying to update that uh, moment of uh, global awareness uh, that began to, uh, to take shape 
at the turn of the current millennium, actually, at the beginning of the 2000s, we had a, a pretty large global demonstrations around the G8, around uh, the WTO, demanding an alternative globalization, a globalization from below. And what the Progressive International would try to say is to, um, is to make the claim that uh, political, um, social, labor organization is needed at planetary level to make uh, uh, to, to truly address those planetary challenges. It's not enough for heads of state to come together in global summits to try and solve the problems because we will constantly be prey to mutual vetoes, zero-sum games, petty national interests. We need to build planetary uh, structures, planetary intermediary bodies, planetary movements, planetary parties, planetary trade unions. And so what it does is to try and work with those actors, with trade unions, with political parties, with social movements, to build this uh, breeding ground, this humus, and also to provide some of the tools required for these organiza organizations to come together and act as one around common challenges. So it's, it's a little bit what uh, we move uh, would be doing for online campaigning, trying to, to, to scale it up from a national to a European dimension. Um, it, it, it's, it's a bit like what, to some extent, Friday for Future is trying to do with local environmental campaigning, to coordinate it and collect it together into a planetary uh, subject, a planetary force. It tries to make this stepping beyond the national dimension through concrete organizational struggles. Okay. And one, one concrete example I'd like to get your opinion on is migration. Because I think in Europe, migration can be used as an example. The, the way people view migration to me is representative, representative of a wider mindset in Europe, which is people want to help, but they don't really want to bother doing anything themselves. They like the idea of welcoming migrants, but they're not going to do anything to, to aid the welcoming of migrants or to help migrants settle into Europe. So I would ask, what changes would you see introduced to the way migration is managed in Europe, but perhaps even more importantly, what changes, how would you like to see the, the mindset or the view of migration change at a citizen's level? Yes, um, I, I don't think it's what you're saying, but there is an argument that is often used that uh, people should somehow show their, um, their belief in the, in the need of welcoming migrants by actually doing something concrete whether that is hosting, hosting them in their house or helping them uh, or providing support or classes. And obviously, I think that's, uh, that, that, that's a very wrong way of going about it, just the way you wouldn't be asked to help uh, an ill person, uh, but you would expect them to have a right to go to hospital and be cured. Uh, I would expect to live in a society where the state uh, or the public body takes uh, full charge in a way that is effective and humane of uh, human beings in need of protection or integration and doesn't relay this onto the shoulders of, of citizens. We need to demand uh, an immigration policy, not uh, a charitable uh, action on the, on the part of, of citizens. Um, but, but more generally, I think we are, um, th th there is a risk of, of missing sight of at least two elements. Um, one is that there is really no migration crisis in the European Union. Uh, this is a crisis of the European migration regime. Uh, it is not a problem at all for a continent of uh, nearly half a billion people 
to integrate even large numbers of refugees and migrants who demand a better life, who demand protection, whether from war or from extreme poverty. I don't think there is so much of a difference between economic migrants and refugees in this, in this sense. Uh, and in fact, Europe would highly benefit both economically and culturally from a well-functioning integration of uh, even significant numbers of, uh, of individuals. It is the inability of the European Union member states to come together around an ambitious policy that leads to a situation where a badly managed phenomenon um, creates uh, real, uh, real existing pockets of exclusion, uh, creates uh, social friction, especially in the poorer parts of our countries or at the borders uh, of, our, of our union, or even puts the entire union at the blackmail of authoritarian leaders like Erdogan. Uh, whom we've seen is able to insult the European Union because the European Union pays him to uh, keep migrants at bay uh, because it lacks a proper integration, integration policy. So we need to understand that if we had an EU policy, we would not have a migration problem in the European Union. And also we would not have the kind of war amongst the poor that we often see in our, in our peripheries where uh, there is a benefits fight between the, those lesser of in our society and those who are coming into our society from outside. And this is probably the second point that I think we need to always keep in mind. Um, responding to the, to, the, to the migration challenge is really a challenge of updating our welfare state. We have a decaying welfare state. Uh, we don't have enough housing, for example, or access to affordable housing. Uh, including for young Europeans or for fra fragile workers in the European Union. And this is one of the clear uh, elements that then triggers a competition for scarce welfare resources, whether it's housing or it's public transport or it's the healthcare, uh, amongst natives and newcomers. If you want to really avoid this from happening, what needs to be done is to upgrade a welfare system that we've inherited from a century ago and make it work for the new century to guarantee a right to housing, to guarantee a right to healthcare, to guarantee a housing to affordable and even free public transport. Uh, unless we upgrade the, the, the social, what, what glues together our society, the great uh, role of social cohesion that a welfare state guarantees, then it's going to be obviously difficult for such a society to integrate newcomers into it. So we need ambition at European level, and then we need to understand that uh, Welfare is what holds a society together and a society that's held together safely and securely is also a society that is much more prone to welcoming uh, and to be humane in its action towards the rest, the rest of the world. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because I'm, I'm glad you, you touched on a couple of points there that I wanted to raise, which is, so speaking from a more personal point of view from my generation friends that I speak to, there's a real feeling of pressure of not being able to not survive, we can survive, but we're on course to be the first generation poorer than our parents, for example. And I do feel, and I see it amongst friends of mine who they share our beliefs, they share our ideologies, but they're more, they're worried, and it's a justifiable worry that they won't have enough money to provide for their family, maybe their parents. Most of us don't have enough money to even think about starting a family, you know? So I do definitely agree that until we solve some of those structural problems, it, social issues are going to, to continue and there will be stigma, stigmatization of certain groups and certain, certain people, even though there absolutely shouldn't be. 
Uh, so I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, go ahead, Paco. Yeah, no, definitely just to jump in to this, like uh, in a way, it's a bit of a, even I see it as a you know divide tempera, like divide and conquer, where like you know because people have this problem, like you know because they feel their own lives uh, are difficult, that there is this you know sort of the neoliberal system and the elites put you like in this position where you're against the migrants rather than seeing uh, that we are all part you know, of a unique um, of a unique group of a unique group who is uh, uh, basically uh, suffering from the current system and on this i have a, um, another question for lorenzo which is also a reflection a little bit like in the sense of what is the role of the european union more in general you say a lot that the goal is not to get uh, a supranational state uh, a supranational state though a federal state let's say could be though uh, at least uh, at the moment no a first step a first important step both in the sense of for example applying a european welfare state uh, what you were mentioning but also i believe and we as arbury road believe being a, a, a sort of model for the world because in this moment in any case the europe with all its flows is probably the most social the most uh, sustainable moment we see big changes needs to be done but it's still you know better than uh, american capitalism from one side and uh, the lack of freedom probably that uh, we have in other countries like china on the other side so what do you think could be this uh, in a step towards the evolution towards the creation of a global governance yes exactly um it's funny because uh uh, you were mentioning Diamond before that uh, uh, this is the first generation that is being uh, lesser of them than their parents, which is true, but it's highly paradoxical if you think that uh, there is much more money than during our parents' generation around. There is much more productive capacity than there was uh, 30, 40 years ago. So the question is, uh, where has the money gone? Uh, there is in theory, a lot more capacity for everyone to lead a better life today than there was 30 years ago. And yet, this is not happening. Uh, something must have happened, and possibly that's got to do with the concentration of wealth towards the top. Uh, if there is a lot of something, in fact, if there is more of something than previously, but less people have it, it mathematically means that some other people have more of it. And of course, we know the, the gigantic concentration of wealth, uh, even during the pandemic, the, the, the levels and extents it has reached. That's where I think the European Union, also as a metaphor for global, gover global governance, really can come in. Um, I think that we can uh, advocate for greater integration at European or planetary level, only if we're able to present it as something that has clear social, uh, economic, political objectives. We cannot sell the idea of integration as an end in itself. It needs to show that it can address problems that the nation state is unable to solve. And when it comes to the concentration of wealth, that is very clear. We know that within the European Union, there are already a number of tax havens that allow large corporations and even small multinationals, in fact, to essentially evade uh, or dodge uh, their fair share of taxation by shifting their profits around to the Netherlands, for example, or to Luxembourg, or even to some British islands. Uh, and that is a scandal. Uh, and that is happening not because there is a European Union, but because there is no European Union, 
when it comes to taxation. And that enables nation states to essentially perform a beggar thy neighbor approach that reduces the income of the vast majority of our countries at the benefit of uh, taking the crumbles for small countries like Ireland or, or the Netherlands. If there were a common European taxation, we know that we would recuperate gigantic uh, resources. For Italy, for example, the estimate is 20 billion euros extra a year in, in tax income. That obviously adds up to a lot of money when you scale it up to the entire European Union that could be used to finance, for instance, a European welfare state. So making a clear equivalence of in tax, tax uh, fiscal integration, integration in taxation within the European Union, in order to have the resources to construct a European welfare state is a kind of demand that goes in the direction of what we need to be able to say if we want to foster closer integration between countries. That is also a metaphor, obviously, for more global or planetary issues, uh, because taxation, we know, demands also global, global minimum tax, which the Biden administration is actually now beginning to talk about and, and, and put pressure on. But it's obvious that if we cannot demonstrate as the most integrated continent in the planet, as the greatest experiment in economic, political integration, if we cannot demonstrate that we cannot do it, then it's going to be very difficult to try and justify it happening at an even larger scale. So I, I always say that Europe is a metaphor for the world to come. If we cannot make it work in the most integrated continent, it's unlikely to work at planetary level. If we can show that coming together that moving beyond our national boundaries, we can actually seize back, for instance, the great wealth that's been accumulated in few hands and redistribute it, then there will be a great example of what can be done also at planetary level. But this is why I say that European integration needs to be advocated through devising political demands. We need, as Albury wrote, I think, also is, is probably believing in a progressive Europeanism. We need a progressive transnationalism, not an end in itself transnational integration ideology that very few people are going to buy. Uh, that's absolutely brilliant. Perfect. Very insightful. Um, one, one thing I, I also want to ask you about, Lorenzo, and I think this feeds into your own unique experience, is that I've been reading about your ideas of combining certain aspects of European culture with Chinese ideology, maybe Chinese philosophy. This to me is an extremely interesting idea. Would you like to, to explain to our listeners, maybe who haven't heard anything or read anything about this, what the, the basic idea uh, behind it is? Yeah, philosophy more than ideology. Chinese ideology is Sorry, that's my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, two things to say on, on, on China. I mean, there will be a lot of things to say in China, but one more general. Uh, I think there is a certain ideological laziness in, in Europe in particular in relating to China. Uh, of course, we relate economically in terms of uh, human rights, uh, although not so much because of personal interests uh, in terms of trade policy. But China is also a great factory of ideas beyond being a great factory of goods. There is uh, quite a vibrant... Uh, although clearly now uh, suffering by the authoritarianism of the Xi Jinping administration, but it's quite a vibrant intellectual, intellectual scene in China that we are not connecting to. Uh, this is explainable through language differences, historical differences. Europe obviously has been much closer to, to Africa than it has to China, which was never fully colonized. It maintained its own independence uh, in, in, in part. But it's, uh, I think, a great danger if we're heading towards uh, a planet where China is going to have a, 
leading role uh, it already it already has with a lack of people-to-people -people contact with a lack of intellectual social political debate and connection between the two spaces because then the risk of portraying china as this um giant that is in competition with us as eventually an enemy that we need to compete against that becomes blurred into an indistinct aura of danger and loses the human touch of uh, an other who is like us uh, can lead to pretty aggressive policies at some point uh, in between countries that don't really have a connection between their populations. So I think it's important that we try to work uh, also at media level to try and build those bridges between uh, European and Chinese civil society. And the kind of discussion to get to the second point that China is having are interesting because um, China is a country that managed to escape the neoliberal trap of uh, privatizing everything, copy, copying the IMF guidelines and the Washington consensus demands to open up their markets, so on and so forth that made developing countries actually never develop. And it managed to, thanks to its large market, have had a very different development model that actually led to the greatest um, uplifting of, uh, of, of individuals in, in, in recent, recent history. We know that almost 80% of the so-called benefits of globalization have to do with the fact that uh, hundreds of millions of poor Chinese farmers have become middle-class consumers. So there is something interesting in that, in that story. It, it, it tells us about the limitations of our own neoliberal economic model at home and abroad. Um, and it also leads China to think very much in global terms. It's clear that China has an ambition of reshaping global governance, of transforming the way that the planet works. Uh, that is probably not necessarily thought about in very progressive terms. It's thought about as an aggrandizement of wealth and power of the country, but there is also an opportunity there because the global model we have is failing. The, the, the planetary organization that we've inherited from the last century is, uh, is collapsing in front of our very eyes. And there needs to be a global conversation on how we update very outdated global institutions and practices that we inherited from colonialism, from World War II, from uh, the institution building of uh, post-war reconstruction, the United Nations, what then would become the World Trade Organization, the, the IMF, so on and so forth. So we need a planetary organization on how do we run the planet together once again. And that conversation can take place and must take place with a country such as China, uh, which to close actually has a long history of intellectual debate about governing the world. Something that you probably uh, were hinting at is this concept of Tiansha, which I mentioned in, um, in, in this latest book, Planetary Politics, which is a 3000 year old Chinese concept of managing the world, managing the planet as a common social, political, economic community. Of course, this comes from a slightly paleo-colonialist approach of China vis-a-vis -vis its Asian neighbors, but it has led to a very interesting intellectual debate uh, that is taking place now amongst Chinese intellectuals on how can you rein in, for example, multinational corporations and bring them back to following a politically decided line and not their own economic interest. And you see that China is actually stepping in this direction. It just fined Alibaba $3 billion. It's taking actions towards its digital multinationals 
that the United States and Europe are currently unable to do. So there is a lot of inspiration that can come from China, notwithstanding, of course, the grave uh, disregard of human rights, the torture and imprisonment in concentration camps, the Uyghur minority, so on and so forth. But I think that cannot stop us from opening up an intellectual conversation with the, with the country. It's fascinating. I think you're right. China does get, um, certainly on people maybe who just haven't done, haven't read into China, haven't looked beyond the human rights abuses, it gets painted with that one brush down to the decisions of, of a few people who happen to be, to be leading. Um, we are, we're running a bit short on time. Paco, do you want to go for the last question there before we, we wrap things up? Uh, yeah, well, um, I perfectly agree on the position of China. I think I perfectly agree on the position of uh, the, the European Union. Uh, I think, well, too close, perhaps we can close from the origins. Uh, so like we both, Arbury Road and European Alternatives, as you were saying, are connected to the UK in a way uh, which uh, is, in a way, the, the real failure of the European Union no, materializes in that year in the UK. I was there during the campaign. Um, and of course, uh, uh, symbolizes all of what we are, we are talking. I, I will attach a little bit to the concept of, uh, since you're quoting Gramsci, who of course is a big inspiration for us uh, of cultural hegemony, perhaps. To talk about exactly this, like so, the, the last point is the concept of cultural hegemony means that the elite is able to create a culture uh, which appears as um, the natural state of things, like common sense, while it is not. So, for example, as Lorenzo was saying before, there are not enough resources. Now, the resources there are here, like we have more resources than 50 years ago, uh, they are just accumulated by uh, elite, no, and not redistributed. And at the same time, the UK, where the, the, the real example of this, like Brexit campaign is the one, like Brexit in general, is the, is the thing that will affect most of all um, common people. Uh, and uh, while will privilege, privilege elite will can, are able to exploit Brexit to enforce uh, neoliberal policies, basically. And this is already, already happening. Uh, so my question is a little bit how we uh, <laughs> dialogue a little bit with how we subvert this thing. You already answered partially to this, but like uh, in concrete terms, how we talk, for example, with people in the UK and hopefully make them rejoin one day the European Union, at least this is my uh, hope. And more in general, how we uh, make people understand that actually things that they think are in their interest are not like it's a really <laughs> complex um, question is a really complex thing to do in my opinion yes i i, I don't pretend that, that i have a, a an answer on how we speak to uh common people in the united kingdom where i i haven't lived actually in the uk for the last uh six or seven or eight years so uh i i i'm quite humble in in, in maybe letting other people who have a greater experience of the country in recent years answer that question. But, but what I think it's interesting to think about uh, from both the UK and abroad is what, poly, what, what, what is a progressive European policy in the UK today? Uh, if Labour Party actually had a policy, for instance, what would it be? Uh, because it's clear that uh, it's unlikely that already at the next elections, uh, a progressive party 
would be able to campaign with a proposal to rejoin the European Union. Uh, I don't expect Labour to have that position uh, three years from now, but uh, that opens the question of what should it be, the European policy of Labour at the next general election. And maybe there, there is still a lack of uh, sufficient investigation, research and, and experimentation. For example, it seems to me that there is an opportunity in coming up with new, uh, new examples of transnational cooperation between the UK and the European Union that upgrade social and environmental standards. We know all the conversation around the common market and the, uh, the alignment of regulations in the UK and the EU as a premise to keep um, trade flowing between the two, uh, the two spaces. That can also be used to our advantage. It would be interesting, for example, for uh, a progressive force in the UK to outline um, the uh, very specific transnational agreements that it could propose to the European Union when it comes to multinational taxation, when it comes to workers' rights and environmental standards in a way that upgrades both for the UK and the EU as a binding requirement for the trade treaty to be kept into effect, uh, those rights for all the workers, both in the UK and in, and in, the, in, in the EU. So I think there is uh, it's still an unexplored space of what could be done that brings the UK and the EU closer together, upgrading the welfare of the planet and of their people, but stopping short of demanding the UK from rejoining the EU, which I don't think is realistic in the next general election. But it would be nice, I think, to have these kind of conversations. How can we have a disruptive, novel European policy in the UK that is uh, progressive in the UK and also in the European Union? That shows that those two blocks working together can achieve things that neither of them can on their own. And that this can be practiced already now without reopening all the discussions about accession. Brilliant. Absolutely perfect. Okay, guys, I think we're gonna leave it there for today. Lorenzo Marsili, thanks a million again for being with us. That was some real insight into some rather complex issues, and I'm sure our listeners thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you, Paco and Demos. Paco, a pleasure as always. And that's everything from us for today. We will be back early next week with more podcasts and articles. Have a lovely weekend, everyone.